Men, not just men, everybody take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. And uh, let's look this morning at the topic, are you living the Christian life or simply enduring the Christian life? Paul says, beginning there in Romans uh, chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, I pray that through your Spirit you would open our understanding to your Word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would be pleased to simply use me as a mouthpiece to accurately communicate your truth and your heart to your people. And may we respond in willing surrender and obedience. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want you to go back in your minds with me a moment to another scene back near the beginning of the Bible. If we were to take time to read Genesis 22, in Genesis 22, we would discover probably one of the more puzzling narratives and troubling narratives anywhere to be found in the Word of God. Certainly a challenging narrative. Genesis 22 is about Abraham being told by God to go up to Mount Moriah where Jerusalem sits today and specifically Mount Moriah would be where the Temple Mount in Jerusalem would be. He, Abraham was to take Isaac to Mount Moriah and he was to offer Isaac, the son of promise, as a sacrifice. Now, we can speculate all day long about what was going on in that text. Could it be that Isaac had become somewhat of an idol, maybe, in Abraham's eyes? I mean, after all, Isaac was born to Abraham and Sarah in their old age, and he was the son that they had longed for and that God had promised many years earlier. And finally, Isaac was here. By the time we get to Genesis 22, he's probably a teenage boy. Had Isaac become somewhat of an idol in his father's eyes, this, this son that he longed for, was he, was he giving attention to Isaac that should only be given to God? Or was it that the pagan Canaanites around, around Abraham, many of them offered their sons to their false gods, their false deities. And so was God saying to Abraham, I want to see if you love me as much as these pagans love their false gods. But at any rate, we know what happened. Abraham, in obedience, took Isaac. Don't you know that that must have been a sleepless night that Abraham had? He takes Isaac to Mount Moriah. And there up on Mount Moriah, he's get, he ties Isaac to the, to the altar and the wood is all around and, and, and he's raising the knife to sacrifice his son and God says, Abraham, don't do it, stop. Now I know that you love me. 
What a tremendous passage of Scripture that is. And it is a story that has enormous application for us today as we look at Romans chapter 12 because we see in Romans chapter 12 that it is ourselves that we are to place upon the altar as an act of devotion. We are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. Paul has been talking about right doctrine in Romans 1 through 8. Right doctrine. How are we to understand our lost condition? How are we to understand what God has done for us in Christ? Romans 1 through 8. Then what about Israel? Has God forgotten his chosen people? Paul deals with that in, in Romans 9 through, uh, through 11. Now he turns his attention to talking about right living. In other words, knowing right doctrine is not an end in and of itself. Right doctrine should produce right living. It certainly matters what you believe, but then what you believe has got to be translated into everyday life also. Doctrine has to result in right ethics or right living. No wonder the Swiss theologian Karl Barth called Christian ethics the great disturbance. Now, you and I wouldn't agree with Bart on many issues, but on this point, I think he was spot on. What a wonderful depiction of the Christian life, how we are to live out doctrine in our ethics. He called it the great disturbance. In other words, if your Christian beliefs haven't radically changed the way you live my brothers, there is something wrong with your Christianity. In these two verses, Paul discusses what flows out of Christian belief. We learn here that, that a life of surrender is the only worthy response to salvation. I want you to see first with me in verse 1, a reasonable offering. Paul says there, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some translations say, which is your reasonable act of worship. We're to make a holy presentation of our lives to God. Dr. F.F. F. Bruce gives a much-needed word here. This sacrifice is contrasted with, with uh, those sacrifices in the Old Testament. In that this sacrifice here that is being spoke of is not the life of another. In the Old Testament, it was an animal. But as Bruce points out, what Paul is talking about is not the life of another, but it is your life. You're to present your life to God. Keep in mind, all those sacrifices in the Old Testament were, were given to atone for sin. But with the coming of Christ, who was the true Lamb of God, he was the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Uh, he offered himself. Now no other sacrifice for sin is needed. But in light of his sacrifice, what should a Christian offer? 
He should offer himself in gratitude. Folks, I think Paul is drawing some intentional analogies and contrast here with the Old Testament. I want you to think about the Old Testament priest walking up to an altar and he would have that that animal, say a lamb, a lamb without spot and blemish, and he would be walking up to the altar to offer that sacrifice to God. But Paul is saying in the New Covenant, you and I walk up to that altar every day, if you will, and we offer ourselves. Such a presentation is motivated by the mercies of God. Mercies in the Greek text is plural, emphasizing how abundant God's grace and mercies are. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. It is the right and the reasonable thing to do in light of God's redeeming grace and mercies. A life of gratitude and service is the proper response to grace. In the book of Romans, Paul has been talking about the mercies of God. Let's think about some of those for a minute. Sinners are justified by the grace of God in Christ. Go all the way back in your minds with me to Romans chapter 3, 23, where he says, For we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23, he says, The wages of sin, the paycheck for a life of sin is death. He's talking there about eternal separation from God. But then he closes that verse out by saying, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In such a state, chapter 4 says that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. In chapter 5 he says that means that you and I have peace with God through Christ. We've been reconciled with God. Not only do we have peace with God, but we actually have access into his presence. Chapter 6. He says we're no longer under the mastery of sin. That doesn't mean that a Christian won't commit sin. It just means that you're no longer under the mastery of sin or the dominion of sin any longer. Chapter 8, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we're led of the Spirit. Now we've been adopted into God's family as His sons and daughters and we can cry out, Abba, Father. All of these are the mercies of God that Paul is thinking about, no doubt, here in chapter 12. And so what he's saying is in light of these mercies, such a sacrifice is the fitting thing to offer. Folks, I want you to think of where you were before you were saved. Think about what your life might have been like. Think of the peace that you now have in Christ. Stop and ponder the depths of sin that God saved you out of. God didn't have to do that. There's not some law in the universe that forced the hands of God that God had to reach out and save you and me. It is only by God's loving grace and mercy that he did so. Paul is counting on the fact that you and I are reasonable enough creatures to be able to stop and ponder all of this. 
We're intelligent enough creatures to, to be able to see this. And so he appeals to our logic here as well, not just offering a, a, a bare-naked command without anything attached to it. He commands logic and reason to it. Look at it. Let's see five different dimensions to this offering he's asking us to make. First of all, it is to be a permanent offering. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present. And the text there, uh, the, the tense rather, suggests a once and for all decision. He's asking us to have one of those watershed moments in life where we once and for all surrender the reins of our life to Jesus Christ. Now, yes, true, it's true, we also must die daily. And yet here Paul is asking every single believer to draw a line in the sand, step across that line, and make a decision. Who's going to be in control in your life once and for all? Jesus Christ is going to be in control. It is to be a no-looking-back type of decision. Do you remember the story of Cortez when he land, his armies landed on the beach in Mexico many, many years ago? Nobody for 600 years had been able to conquer the peoples in that part of the world. And Cortez... His ships pulled up near the beaches. His armies got off. And as, as he was giving them the command to march forward, it said that he burned all the ships in the bay and the message to his troops was, you've only got one direction to go. You can't turn back. Now I realize, you people who love history, I love history too. I realize historians debate it, that, that probably he didn't burn his ships. In reality, historians have come to the conclusion what Cortez actually did was sink his ships. But whether you burn your ships or sink your ships, it's the same thing. He was giving his armies the indication. There is no turning back. Because some of them wanted to take the boats and, and go to Cuba. And he was telling them, there is no turning back. There's only one way to go. And that's the kind of decision Paul is calling on us to make. What if every man and woman who ever committed their life to Christ and was born again made this kind of decision? What if every one of us said, Lord, come what may in my life. Come what may. My thoughts, my finances, my relationships, my service to God, there's going to be no retreat. I give 100%. That's what he's asking. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we're being invited to do. What are your weaknesses? Lay them on the altar. What are your strengths? Lay them on the altar. What about a life of ministry and missions that God might be calling you to? Lay it on the altar. Present yourself to God. Secondly, it's a personal offering. He says, I beseech you, brethren, to offer your bodies. He's speaking to the church, but it is a decision he's calling every member of the body of Christ to make. Folks, I want you to think about this for a moment. We so often think in terms of what we can receive from God. That's upside-down thinking. We ought to be thinking about what we need to offer to God. 
and then let God worry about what he's going to give us in return. Paul said, give yourself. It is to be a personal presentation. Nobody else can do it for you. I think of Joshua in the book of Joshua near the end when he was standing there before the people and he said, you've got to choose for yourselves what you're going to do, but it's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a personal choice, personal offering. It's to be a physical offering. Thirdly, he says, present your bodies. The body here stands for the whole of life. Paul, in all likelihood, is combating Greek thought and philosophy here. Because, you see, the Greeks tended to diminish the body. They had a saying, Soma Sema Esten. The body is a tomb. And so in the Greek way of thinking, the the thing you wanted to accomplish was being free of the tomb one day. But folks, that's not biblical. The body is a gift of God, and so we are to offer our bodies even back to God. We aren't simply to say, Jesus, I give you my heart. Come into my heart. It should be, Lord Jesus, not just my heart, but come in and transform every fiber of my being. Take all of me. You see, here is where some of the great disturbance happens because if we were to go back to chapter 3 in chapter 3 we would see what Paul said we did with our bodies when we were lost in our depraved nature listen to what he says in chapter 3 and I want you to notice the different parts of the body that he mentioned he says their throat is an open grave who's he talking about? he's talking about all of us in our lost condition their throat is an open grave they use their tongues to deceive the venom of asp is under their lips their mouth is full of curses and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they've not known there is no fear of God before their eyes so in our lostness and depravity the body was given to all the wrong things our minds our eyes our lips our hands our feet We could go on and on and on. The members of our body were given to the wrong things. And Paul is saying here, now that you're redeemed, the same things, every aspect of your body is to be presented to the Lord. Present all of yourself. It's to be a perpetual offering. He says living. In the Old Testament, when a a sacrifice was made, it was killed. Folks, the day may come, who knows, you and I might be martyrs. Look at what they're doing to our brothers and sisters in Christ, what they've done to some, some of them over in Egypt or Syria or other places. 
There may come a day that you and I might have to die for our faith in Christ. But right now, we're not being called to die for our faith in Christ. Uh, We're being called to live for Christ, to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. I like what John Stott said on one occasion. He said, it's as though the Christian is to wake up every morning and when you turn back the covers and roll out of bed, you're to imagine yourself rolling up onto an altar and saying, here I am, Jesus. Use me for your glory today. It's to be a pure offering, holy, set apart. You belong to God now. You're to live for His purposes. That's what it means to be holy. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I got news for you, Christian. You don't belong to you anymore. You belong to Christ. And so we're to make a willing offering of ourselves. Permanent, personal, physical, perpetual, and pure. Second thing I want you to see this morning, it's an acceptable offering. It's an acceptable offering. I want you to notice about halfway through verse 1, he says, holy and acceptable to God. Such a reasonable, willing offering is acceptable to God. It is desired by Him and it is pleasing to Him. Folks, I want you to think about it this way. In the Old Testament, a sacrifice would be rejected by God if it were not the proper kind of sacrifice. Again, I think as we read these verses, Paul is, in his mind, he must be doing a running commentary in his thoughts comparing the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The sacrifices then and now. Remember those sacrifices in the Old Testament, how they were to be? But you remember what the people turned them into? And they were rejected by God. They were not acceptable. Go back this afternoon and read the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. They'd come back from exile. And some of them were disillusioned a a little bit and maybe God didn't work the way they thought God was going to work in the nation and and, and they had just kind of settled back into their routines in life and they were just going through the motions in worship. They were coming to worship. You remember what God said? In your flocks, for instance, he said, give the, 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 the lambs without blemish or spot. And, and they, got where they, they, they got where they'd say, mm, that's the best, I'm keeping that for me. And they would look through their flocks and find the sick and the diseased and the lame, that which was no use to them anyway, and they ended up taking that to the temple to sacrifice. They were giving God the leftover crumbs and keeping the best for themselves. And remember what God said? God said, I just wish one of you would go to the temple doors and shut it that my people would not come in here and profane my name. What are you offering to God? Leftover crumbs? Remember Haggai? Same message in Haggai. He was also one of the post-exilic prophets. But Haggai looked around and he saw everybody doing the best to build their homes and their businesses and take care of all their stuff. 
while everything related to God and the service and worship of God, they were leaving in ruins. And remember what Haggai said, what God said through Haggai in Haggai chapter 1? He said, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He's saying, just think about what you're doing. You've sown much and you bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, behold, I blew it away. Why? Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that's in ruin while every one of you runs to your own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. So in both of those cases, in Malachi and Haggai, the people were motivated to think only of themselves and neglect the things of God and just give God the leftovers instead of giving them the best, uh, giving him the best. And in both cases, what's the Bible say that God did? He rejected them. But Paul is saying here in Romans 12, 1, when we offer the type of sacrifice that he's speaking of here and put God first, it will be acceptable to him. It will be well-pleasing in his sight. He says such a presentation is our spiritual worship, our reasonable act of worship. Now, listen to what he's saying there. We think of worship as something that we simply do in here on a Sunday morning, and indeed it ought to be. But instead, Paul's saying, also think of your entire life, everything about your life this week. How you talk to your employees, how you talk to your employer, what you do, your relationships, what you do with your finances. What you do with all of your life this week. Paul is saying we need to stop and consider it's not just this in here, but it's all of life that is to be our worship to God. It's like Paul said in Colossians 3. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The Bible here is challenging us to rise up to a whole new level of living. I like what Bible teacher John Phillips says here. He says so many people are just ruled by the senses. They live on the sensual level and, and he, he doesn't necessarily mean immoral stuff there. We're just living on the sensual level. He says think of the following expressions. I don't like the smell. It's too hot. I'm too tired. It's ugly. Philip says each of those statements reflects a physical reaction. People are ruled by such, uh, con who are ruled by such considerations are ruled by the senses, by what they see, hear, taste, feel, or smell. He says it is, a po it is possible for a Christian to live at this level. He may be saved, but he's living at the lowest possible level. He won't go to prayer meeting because the room might be too hot. He'll not work in the slums because those people stink. He doesn't like so-and-so in the church because 10 years ago he said something to me and I've not got over it since. 
Philip says that's, that's living at the sensual level. But Paul is appealing to us that, that we would present ourselves totally to the Lord and be led of the Spirit. And if we're led of the Spirit, he has our senses, he has our intellect, he has our emotions. And if we're living on the spiritual level, we're making decisions based on where God is leading. And such a life will be pleasing to God. It will be acceptable to him. Are you giving God the best of you or the leftovers? The leftovers he will reject. If you're giving him yourself the best of you as a living sacrifice, that is acceptable. Men, how are we living? Third thing about this offering, it's a transforming offering. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We're to be sold out to God. We're to be sold out to His plan. And if that's the case, what will we see? What will this kind of offering of our lives look like? Well, first of all, there will be a refusal to compromise. He says, do not be conformed to this age. I like how Philip, J.B. Phillips translates it. Do not be squeezed into this world's mold. You see, there's this age and there's the age to come. It's like what Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to live in this age by the standards of the next age because this age and everything about this age is passing away. And so the challenge for the Christian is don't buy into the world's ways. Don't buy into the world's views. Colossians 3.1, Paul says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Folks, the challenge for the Christian is to live in this world but not be conformed to it. The Bible says what we see is temporal but what is unseen is eternal. Are you living for the temporal or the eternal? The challenge for the Christian is to use the things of the world without being conformed to the world's pattern. Folks, the Lord gives us a snapshot in the Old Testament of what this is to look like. Isn't it amazing how he gives us snapshots in the Old Covenant of how we're to live in the New Covenant? And, and what I'm speaking of here is Daniel. Think of Daniel with me a moment. Daniel was probably just a teenage boy. Scholars believe 14, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in that range when the, when the Babylonians came in and captured the people of Judah and carried away the best to Babylon for the 70-year exile. And Daniel was in that group that got carried away. And, and remember, because of Daniel's capabilities and all, they, the, the king of Babylon, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, what, they had a policy. They would take the cream of the crop among the young people and they would try to make Babylonian disciples out of them and use them and use these foreign peoples, these young people that they had indoctrinated, use them in their government courts. And so they try to do that with Daniel. 
And chapter 1 verse 8 of Daniel says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Could you imagine a 14 to 17 year old teenage boy being taken away from home, probably mom and dad, everything, getting in this foreign land, and he purposes in his heart that he will not defile himself. Here he is in a foreign land. Where are you and I? The Bible says that we're, this earth is like a foreign land to us. We're citizens of heaven. Daniel was in a foreign land, and yet in a foreign land he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He remained true to God. He would not compromise. Folks, it's always been this way for God's people. Go all the way back to Leviticus 18. You know what God told his people in Leviticus 18? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. You've been in Egypt, you're going to the promised land, you, you, just as you, you weren't to conform to the Egyptians, you're not to conform to the Canaanites. Could you have imagined Moses or Joshua telling the children of Israel, listen, when you get into the promised land, just go along to get along. Blend in. Could you imagine Moses or Joshua saying such a thing? No. Because God said to his people in that foreign land, I've chosen you. You are to be my distinctive people. There is to be a difference in you. And that's what Paul is saying to the Christian. Don't be conformed. Second thing about this this transforming offering is it it involves a renewal of the mind he says be but be transformed that the holy spirit controls your thinking you're being transformed the word transformed here is the same word that is used twice in the gospels for jesus being transfigured peter james and john went up on the mount of transfiguration with jesus and they saw jesus in all of his glory You see, his full glory on earth was, was veiled. He didn't empty himself of any of his deity or divinity, but he did empty himself of, of that heavenly glory he had had with the Father. He came to earth as a man in flesh without sin. But when he was transfigured, these three disciples got to see Jesus in all of his heavenly glory. Remember John later on in the book of Revelation out on the Isle of Patmos? He was in the spirit on the Lord's day in worship and he turned because behind him he heard something and he turned around and what did he see? A vision of the glorified Christ. Folks, that's what Peter and James and John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration. The Bible says here that there is a sense in which you and I are to be transfigured. We also get our word 
metamorphosis from this. Think with me a moment about that caterpillar. That caterpillar that, 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 that gets in a quiet, dark space and it weaves that cocoon around itself and, and then some months later it, it emerges as something very beautiful. Well, he's saying that's, that kind of is an analogy of what happens with us. When we first get saved, we're still kind of like that caterpillar. Though we're changed and born again, there's a lot of work that the Lord wants to do on us. Uh, but as we obey the Lord and, 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 and meditate in His Word and do what Paul is saying here, we're daily changed from that caterpillar into something more glorious. You say, how does that happen? How, do, how does this transforming of the mind take place that changes our lives? By getting in God's Word. Because you see, we grow up as, as we grow up in this world that knows not God and we're lost and we're getting all of our cues and, and we're building all of our thoughts and convictions on things that we see around us. We're children of this age. We're children of this world. But then we get saved. Now we're children of God. And so all these cues we've taken from the world, now we're to be in God's Word, allowing God to change the way we, we look at things. How is a Christian supposed to, supposed to look at his finances? How is he supposed to look at his relationship? How is he supposed to look biblically at the social issues of 2016? Where do we learn how God wants us to think? We learn it in His Word. Folks, the number one challenge, I think, of the church today is that we need to learn to have a biblical worldview. Because frankly, as I look at the church today, we don't have a biblical worldview. We're looking at things and having some of the same convictions our lost brethren in the world have. We need a biblical worldview. Where are you going to get a biblical worldview? From the Bible. And Paul is saying here, as we're in the Word, and God is, God is reprogramming us, as we're in the Word, reading His Word day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, it doesn't happen overnight, but what does God do? The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and He changes our thinking. And because He changes our thinking, He changes our lives. Because the Bible says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And then notice the bonus out of this. You ready for this? Don't miss this. Number one question ministers are asked about. The will of God. You want to know the will of God? Number one question people ask. At the tail end of this passage, notice what he says. That by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and 
perfect. Most people come to God and they want to know the, the, the will of God up front. God, lay out your will. I want to see it. And then I want to have a democratic vote in the process whether I like your will or not. Folks, it doesn't work that way. It's only after the blood, sweat, and tears of the first part of this passage, verses 1 and 2, after we're making ourselves that living sacrifice, we're not being conformed uh, to, the, to the world, but we're being renewed in the thinking of, of, of our minds through saturating our hearts and minds on the Word of God. It, it's through all that tough, nitty-gritty that you and I come to discover the will of God. See, people want to jump to the end of this passage and get that and ignore everything that goes before. And it doesn't work that way. You want to know the will of God? Then pay attention to everything else I've said before we come down to this last phrase of verse 2. Knowing the will of God is the fruit of all the other things being in place here. And I want you to notice what he says about his will, what he says about God's will. God's will is good and pleasing and perfect. How many people do you know that somehow or another think if they live for Jesus Christ and live for the will of God, it's going to be a prison. They're going to be in bondage. No, it's just the opposite. You're going to be free. The will of God is good and pleasing and perfect. If we had time, we'd go on in chapter 12 because verses 1 and 2 are sort of the guiding verses for the rest of the book of Romans. Because you see, you get down into verses 3 and 8 and he's talking about life in the body of Christ and he starts discussing spiritual gifts. And you and I think there's a disconnect in what he's just said in verses 1 and 2. And there's no disconnect. Because he's saying that if individually we're living out verses 1 and 2 and we're, we're presenting ourselves as that living sacrifice to God and, and discovering the will of God, then in the church body we're going to know what our spiritual gift is and we're going to be carrying out our spiritual gift in the body of Christ. And then verses 9 and following, he talks about how we relate to folks in the world. We're going to know how to do that. And then you get to chapter 13. He's going to talk about the Christian's role of response to government. We're going to know how to do that because of Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then you get to chapter 14, and he talks about how in the world do we relate to the weaker brother that, that gets offended at stuff. And, and we don't want to be a stumbling block to that brother. How are we going to know how to do that? Because of Romans 12, 1 and 2. You see, it all flows out of verses 1 and 2, chapter 12. Men, I wonder this morning, are you just enduring the Christian life day to day? Or are you living the Christian life? Are you presenting yourself as that living sacrifice to God? Day, in light of all the mercies of God, think if you could think not only what Paul said here in, in Romans um, 
1 through 11, what he said before that covers all the mercies of God. But, I mean, just even look at your own life where you were before you got saved. Think of all your circumstances in your life and what you went, what God brought you through and how God kept you safe until the day you got saved. Is that not mercy? That's mercy. Think of everything God did in your life engineering, bringing about your conversion. In light of that, men, he's saying we need to put ourselves on the altar and not die but live for Christ and not be conformed to this age but be transformed. Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'm going to ask you right now that if you have never truly made that wholehearted, no-strings-attached kind of commitment to the Lord, that you would do that now. If there's never been that time in your life that you've been converted, and God's been working on your heart, you know God's been working on your heart. You can't put it into words necessarily, but you know God's working on your heart. And God's got you here for a reason. And you're convicted of your sin and your need of a Savior and you want to have peace with God. I want to appeal to you this morning to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, save me. Forgive me. Holy Spirit, bring about that new birth from above that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. Do that in my life. Would you make that your prayer? And all of us, including those who know they're saved, what is it that's determining how you think? Are you taking your cues and convictions from the world? Men, I want to ask you on this Baptist Men's Day that you'd say to God, God, I need to live differently. I need, I need to be in your word, saturated in your word. God, I need to think thoughts after you that are pleasing to you. And this year, men, get in the Word of God. I want you to notice you've got an active role to take. It, God does all the saving. God saves you. You and I don't do anything to be saved. It's God's work through Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection, and how He calls us to Himself through the power of His Spirit and transforms us. The salvation is a work of the Lord. But I want you to notice here, He's saying, we've got to respond and present ourselves to Him as that living sacrifice. Men, are you doing that?
Are there some areas of your life right now where you see a lot of compromise with the world? And maybe this morning your prayer needs to be, God, make me more like a Daniel that the pastor mentioned a moment ago. Who couldn't help it that he had to live in a foreign land, but he purposed in his heart that he wasn't going to defile himself. Confess those compromises and ask God for that transforming process. Lord, have your way and your will this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need Christ in your life, And you know in your heart that God is calling you and speaking to you. I want to ask you to come forward this morning. I'd like to pray with you. If you're looking for a new church home where you can fellowship with other believers, you come forward. I'd love to pray with you and present you to the congregation. The altar's open. If you want to come to this altar, and it doesn't just have to be men. Had ladies come in the early service. You won't come to this altar if there's something you're dealing with. Maybe some area of compromise. Who knows? God knows. Come do business with God. Or just right there in your seat, you can do business with God.